Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. <laughs> right on, Caitlin. <laughs> uh, my name is Rob, and um, I will be one of your hosts today. I'm Teresa, your other host today. And today we welcome Jake Hansbury, the chairman of the White Panther Party. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everybody. Caitlin's also somewhere in the ether. Yeah, you don't see her, but I you'll am hear here. Just audio, guys. Yeah, just video, guys, or just audio, guys. Yeah, just a disembodied voice joining the chat. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about, um, well, the White Panther Party, the United Panther Movement, the Rainbow Coalition, um, and the community center built by the Rainbow Coalition in Newark, New Jersey. Is that my cue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the White Panther uh, organization, which is what the White Panther Party uh, comes out of, at least the modern iteration, um, that was formed in 2005 by the New African Black Panther Party prison chapter. Uh, the New African Black Panther Party prison chapter was founded as a uh, ideological political continuum of the original Black Panther Party in the 1960s and 70s. Um, it was formed out of a reading group. There was a, there was an organization that had a, uh, uh, like a, a prisoner's education kind of course going on within the prisons. They would bring in different literature and, uh, people would read them. One of the little contingents within this, uh, this course decided to start to read works like uh, Marx and Lenin and Mao. And from that, that group kind of broke off and formed the New African Black Panther Party prison chapter. Originally, uh, the chairman of the prison chapter was uh, Kevin Rashid uh, Johnson. And the Minister of Defense was uh, Shaka Zulu. And so <laughs> what ended up happening uh, over the years, well, rather, sorry, there was this, uh, there was a guy named uh, Billy Spider Johnson. He was the original chairman of the White Panther Organization. And the White Panther Organization was a group of uh, white prisoners who were kind of seeing uh, some of the things that this group <coughs> were reading. Uh, also having conversations with them, kind of having friendships, uh, bonds kind of growing. They they decided to to ask the New African Black Panther Party if they could join, and they told them that they could form the White Panther Organization, much in the same way that Huey Newton in, uh, I believe it was 1968, told uh, a group of college students, and not only them, but also on an interview, uh, that there needs to be Panther organizations in the white community. Yeah. So that uh, contingent, the White Panther organization, worked alongside and was an arm of the white, or I'm sorry, the uh, New African Black Panther Party prison chapter uh, from 2005 onward. 
And in 2010, um, the uh, White Panther organization kind of hit the street a little bit through the organizing of Tom Watts, uh, who was also one of the uh, leading organizing forces behind uh, the New African Black Panther Party prison chapter in 2005. So what Tom did was he organized a student movement in, I believe, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's either Bethlehem or Allen County. Um, and that group of students was distributing Marxist-Leninist Maoist literature within their schools. Uh, this group of people was headed up by a guy named Ellis Roberts, who uh, went over to uh, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and there, the, that White Panther organization quickly morphed into an arm of Occupy Wall Street. Um, from there forward, uh, the White Panther organization uh, focused more on this uh, group called the Maryland Buck Brigade, which I don't know if you know who Maryland Buck is, but she was a uh, political radical revolutionary. Uh, she she uh, she she was involved in a, a few bombings. Uh, she had some some things that she had wrote to, but uh, the, the organization was named after her, and it had to do with uh, organizing around. Uh, rights, class struggle issues. Did you have a, a question, Trisha, or something to say? No, just taking it all in. Oh. <laughs> it, it's good to know the background here. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot here that you're informing us on that I was not aware of. So right. this, is just a, this is just a summary. I have something a little bit more in depth that we'll go over uh, in a second. But um, so the organizing was focused around that and the UPN. Uh, the UPN is the mass-based organization of the New African Black Panther Party. So the, uh, the ideological political line of any organization that wants to get involved with the New African Black Panther Party or even individuals, it doesn't necessarily have to be Marxist-Leninist Maoist or uh, revolutionary intercommunalism. Uh, it can be, you know, anything from, you know, liberalism to social democracy to anarchists, any, anybody who agrees with the 10-point program of the New York and Black Panther Party. So um, basically, to put it in short, it's uh, anybody who's to the left of hunting the homeless for sport. Well, no, I mean, anybody, anybody on the political spectrum at all, aside from, like, say, a fascist or Nazis or any, you know, this kind of ultra rightist, you know, any and the point is so it's it's called ideological. Uh, I'm sorry, it's called programmatic unity, right? So, as a, a socialist party or a communist party, one of the things that you do is you you develop what's called a program, right? Which is like your base ideology and how you're going to implement that. What kind of solutions are you looking for in the world to whatever problem it is? what is the praxis to get to those solutions so that's what a program is right so if the 10-point program of the black panther party calls for you know the release of all uh prisoners right and you know now this is rare right probably aren't going to see this and you're as a conservative 
might say, okay, I agree with this. Well, you agree with, you're in programmatic unity with the Black Panther Party, right? And so right. the idea is that the UPN functions on the basis of programmatic unity, right? So mm -hmm. you don't need to be a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. You don't need to be uh, somebody who agrees with Huey Newton necessarily. As long as you agree with the 10 point program, you can be in the UPN. So it's kind of a mass based organization. And this is how this is structured. It's done in a kind of cellular fashion, right? You have your base supporters on the bottom who will go out and do the legwork who agree with you programmatically, right? And as you move up, you have a party organization, which is a vanguard party. These are professional revolutionaries. All of their time outside of the things they need to do to maintain their life are based in straight up working for a revolution. That is what it is. Yeah. So, right. So at the top, you have, you know, in, in the to, uh, uh, to, to put it in my own words, something maybe like Stalin would have said, the vanguard party, the professional revolutionaries need to be as hard as steel. These are people who have dedicated their whole lives to the struggle, right? They're the people who are going to actively drive the revolution into existence. They're going to develop uh, higher stages in the class struggle. They're going to develop programs based on what the masses need. They're going to look to solve their problems, but they need to find out what those problems are. So they need to engage with the masses, whether they be somebody like peasant farmers, whether they be bumping proletariat, whether they be petty bourgeoisie even, or whether they be proletariat in general. Yeah. These are the people that you have to engage with. But those people are not going to lead the revolution. That would be Kaolism. The revolution is going to be led by vanguards. So uh, in this kind of cellular fashion, you have the mass-based organization at the bottom and the party on the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, below the mass base, you have people who aren't in ideological or programmatic unity with the party. Yeah. Uh, these are people who might agree with some of it don't agree with all of it or might not agree with any of it but re recognize that you're solving problems in their lives right these are people who are just kind of kind of supporting so they're not close-knit in the same way that somebody in the UPN might be anyway but could be if you talk with them about that because uh, you know clearly the people in those positions are also aware of the class structure being harmful those are people to tap and talk to and, okay. and radicalize. Well, that's that's ultimately the point of the UPM, right? But, well, yeah, one of the yeah, exactly. You know, uh, one of the things that Mao had said was that you had three kinds of people. You had the people who were essentially unsalvageable. They're they're never going to agree with you, and it's out of yeah. sheer force of will in a lot of cases. Uh, and then you had people who were kind of you know almost apolitical or neutral. And then you had people who were very likely to support you. And he said that the people that you want to gear toward were those apoliticals, those neutrals, and the people that support you. That's what's going to get you the majority of the masses on your side. So, uh, and of course, all of these things that I'm saying, for example, when I'm saying the Stalin or Mao, that's yeah. I was thinking the mass line. I, I don't have I'm not I don't have a photographic memory, so I can't remember all these things on the fly, but this is the gist of what they were talking about. Um, but 
back to the, the history here, uh, the organizing was focused around the Maryland Buck Brigade and the UPM. Uh, when the uh, when the uprising happened last year, uh, there was a, a chairman elected to the White Panther organization. Ellis Roberts had, had fallen out of the, this kind of sphere of organizing. Um, and his name was uh, was uh, Justin Lara. Um, Justin, alongside the New African Black Panther Party and the New Era Young Lords, uh, formed the Second Rainbow Coalition. The Second Rainbow Coalition is actively endorsed by elders from every organization that is a part of it. This is people from anybody from groups like AIM or uh, the Brown Berets to you know the New African Black Panther Party, the White Panthers. Uh, there's other groups too. Uh, uh, we've got the Green Party in New Jersey. We have an organization called Fury. And there's several other groups that we're currently in talks with that are seeking membership into the Rainbow Coalition. So that's kind of where, and uh, earlier this year, around the summer, uh, Justin had stepped down from his position as chairman. Uh, and the Central Committee of the New African Black Panther Party voted me unanimously as chairman. So uh, that's where we're at now. Uh, so if you have any questions or anything you want to say, or, you know, uh, I have a more in-depth overview that I'd like to read to you all. Uh, but uh, if you have anything you'd like to say, I'd like to uh, well, I do want to point out that earlier you said you don't have a photographic memory and you can't remember these quotes exactly, but actually I think that shows an understanding of the material beyond being able to parrot it. You put it in your own words. Yeah, you talk right. about how it affects you and that I like to see that. I can, right. I can understand, I can understand why they felt that you were a suitable choice for chairman just based off of that alone. And I don't, I don't know anything about you. When that happens to me, because it's like these people put it more succinctly, you know, but, but it shows that you have a working knowledge basis here, right? You know, that's, that's so important because anybody can parrot the quotes. It's, can you apply the concepts and yeah. actually bring them to fruition with your actions? Right. You know, uh, and this, this leads to, to my I, question, too. Oh. I wanted to know how you even came into this. I'm dying to know your background, your prior activism work, and how, I mean, you're, you're the chairman now. So. Well, I was, uh, so I'm, I operate out of Indiana. Uh, most of the work that I do uh, revolves around uh, northern Indiana and uh, like the Chicago region of Illinois. Um, during the uprising last year, uh, I and a couple other people headed up an anarchist organization. Uh, it wasn't really an anarchist organization. It was more of a kind of a united organization. We had Marxist-Leninists and anarchists working together. Uh, and, you know, an organization that started but with, you know, six people ballooned over the course of several months into an organization with like 30 people. And, uh, 
you know, I remember our first action, uh, this is the first time that I was, I did, you know, any kind of like, uh, uh, like exhorting on the street. Um, we had six people and one of them was wearing a riot gear because of the police presence. We had six people were out in front of a small town or we're out in a small town in Indiana. And, um, they sent in, you know, hundreds of police officers are on every corner. They must've spent like 50 grand. I'm not even shitting you. They had like, uh, they had drones and, you Jesus know, <laughs> here screaming about the emancipation, the working class and how, you know, blacks and whites and all these people need to come together and all this and all this shit. And, you know, they're, they're, they're just spent so much money on, on something that was so small, but that was the first action that we did. And then, you know, toward the, uh, uh, this organization is now defunct by the way. So, uh, but toward the kind of dissolution of this organization, one of the biggest or, uh, protests that we organized, uh, we went to that same place and we had about 50 people. It was all the activists in the area were, were going to the, and this town is a former sundown town and, you know, uh, has a really, really bad history in regards to race relations. It's still heavily segregated in all these different ways. So uh, we kind of pulled together the activist community in a, in a really interesting way and ended up forming this coalition called the United Against Racism Coalition. Anyway, that's my, my previous history, uh, uh, how I gained the organizing experience that I have. Uh, but you know, how did I get into the, the sphere of pantherism? That's a, a different thing. Um, there were kind of ideological tensions within this organization, as you can imagine. Right. You know, yeah. people on one side who all they can talk about is hierarchy in regards to class struggle. And on the other side, you've got people that think that hierarchy is definitely a, a necessity uh, in the class struggle. And so it's hard to get these two groups to see eye to eye. And then there's another thing that's happening too, is that since that group is formed in an area with a, a majority white population, you've got a bunch of white people sitting around talking about people like Marx and Engels or Kropotkin and, you know, Bachmann or well, all these different, you know, theorists. And they're all, all talking about ownership and things like that. They're not talking about race. And it's the thing that we were out there protesting about. And so the conversations are very deep on why you're being exploited, but they're not very deep on how like empire works or uh, what it's what your role is as a, a radical white activist in a, a, you know, a colonized world. These kinds of things weren't, weren't really having, they weren't really having these conversations. And so it's not only that, there's some uh, organizing tension too uh, between me and an, another organizer so there were a couple different reasons, but <clears throat> I kind of split away from, from, from this group for that, for those reasons. And, uh, looking for a new vehicle to organize, I was kind of looking into the Panthers and I started to agree with a lot of the things that I was reading. Uh, and then from that, Same. I had, I had seen, uh, earlier last year, uh, just before the uprising might've been during, I don't remember. Kwame Shakur, the Minister of Culture for the New African Black Panther Party, 
he was on the ground in Indianapolis, and I see this guy, he's wearing this blue shirt, and it's his, you know, New York and Black Panther Party, it's Panther symbol on it, and he's got, like, probably 60 people around him, and, you know, he's doing a chant, and then he gives a speech, and what the chant is, is uh, uh, boots on the ground, all power to the people, and it's just fucking, it was, it was awesome, and the speech he gave was, you know, it hit, it hit pretty deeply, you know, because he's not just talking about, you know, who owns what or, you know, all, you know, the things that, you know, white Marxists tend to engage in or white anarchists tend to engage in if they're very uh, reductionist. Uh, it's more broad than that. And that's the thing that I like. It's a lot more rich. So anyway, I, I friend him and few other people <laughs> and then i see this video and this whole time i'm reading theory on you know marx and you know, angles and now and all these people but uh i see this video from chairman shaka where he's got the fbi and this is you know late in the year or early this year sorry and it's after the, the day so after january 6th January yeah. 7th, 7 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Outside <laughs> Chairman Shaka's house. And guess who has his phone open? And he's got he's on live on Facebook. That right there, yep. you know, it showed me that the FBI views these people as a real threat. Whereas, you know, we, we saw plenty of repression on our end, you know, working in that small organization out here in Indiana. Uh but we didn't we, we weren't really concerned with being followed or you know maybe the government tried to read your email or you know these are things that you know once a movement starts to get like real traction that's the kind of thing that you'll see happen right like serious operations happening like we didn't see that happening out here all we saw were like people who were liberal activists, you know, calling the, the, the police department ahead of time before a protest. Like, that's as far as, you know. And so, uh, you know, seeing that, you know, I'm sitting here realizing, you know, pantherism is absolutely potent. Oh, yeah. want this to, 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 to hit the street. So, you know, that in, you know, connection with the things that I had read and the people that, the conversations that I was having, too, because I, at this point, now I'm speaking with uh, Tom Watts about uh, joining the White Panthers. Um, you know, and from there I meet Justin, and then I meet you know Kwame, and then I meet Chairman. And you know, it I was helping them and organizing on the ground, you know, on DPM Collective out here in Indiana. Uh, and that so that's basically how I get into the orbit of, of the Panthers. I find it interesting that we're half a country apart, but I, I knew Chairman Zulu from New Jersey. I'm a New Jersey former resident. I watched that live as well. Um, and it, it was a radicalizing moment. It was enraging. I had just watched people I knew, you know, I had family members that had gone to DC and participated. No, nothing was done at the time to stop it. But there's Zulu being woken up the next day in Newark, New Jersey with FBI. And he and he was I mean, I couldn't believe how he handled it, too. Do I look like I'm one of those MAGA people? <laughs> <was there> yesterday? 
you know, yeah, and it, it did not- to, to be fair, I don't remember seeing any melanin in that fucking crowd. None. Yeah. <laughs> Literally none. Yeah. So, you know. So anyway, uh, that's, that's basically how I got into that sphere. Um, now, if you don't mind, I can go through this real briefly this document if you guys don't mind if you want to yeah, go ahead yeah if you want to screen share it's that button in the middle it might have a red line through it but it is available right uh the trouble is oh no i, no, I can't do that either uh this is a part of my email wait i know what i can do i can go like i think i can do that yeah i can all right all right okay just a little bit. Give me a second. All right. Sorry, guys. You're it's good. Okay. Hey, there's a new Oh, whoa. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> All right. So here we are. So. All right. So the, the original White Panther Party was founded in 1968 by Pun, Flam, and Don Johnson, Claire, and Blanks, and Claire in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was a political party in America. Or I'm sorry. It was the first political party in American history to be founded with a rock band, the MC5. Their brand of hard rock pioneered the fast and loud punk and metal scenes that would come into prominence two decades later. They were one of the baddest bands around, and their manager, John Sinclair, was the chairman of the White Panther Party. Rising out of the beatnik poet community and jazz crowd coalescing around the college campuses and coffee houses around Detroit, Michigan, John was influenced heavily by the revolutionary militancy of the Black Panther Party and took up the call by comrade Huey P. Newton to create a White Panther Party in the white community. A sister organization to the Black Panther Party the White Panther Party built itself in alliance with the Yippie Movement, inspiring some uh, some 50 autonomous chapters and affiliated collectives of White Panther comrades around the country. John Lenny, or sorry, John Lenny and Gary Grimshaw co-edited the bi-weekly Ann Arbor Sun, which was the voice of the White Panther Party, and the party played an influential an influential role within the underground press around the country. The party also sponsored and supported various Serve the People survival programs in Ann Arbor and many other communities, including food co-ops, free clinics, community switchboards, community gardens, crash pads, and other free services. The party sponsored a woman's organization, the Red Star Sisters. Sorry. The Red Star Sisters, where is that? Founded in 1970, which patterned itself after the revolutionary Vietnam Women's Union. From traveling around the country alongside the Grateful Dead to the recruitment campaign conducted during the legendary Woodstock Music Festival to shootouts involving the attempted seizure of the various chapter clubhouses around the country between the White Panthers and the federal government police, the White Panthers were down for the struggle. At the height of the party's power, John Sinclair was accused of giving two joints to an undercover female police agent and of plan- planning the bombing of a CIA office on the University of Ann Arbor campus. He was convicted of possession of marijuana and sentenced, sentenced to 10 years in prison, an act of repression that many rev- revolutionaries across U.S. history received. 
Rising to their ranks and piggybacking off of the dramatic trial of Chicago 7, a mass movement was born, one that would become the modern marijuana movement. In collaboration with the Youth International Party, the White Panthers organized mass smoke-ins in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in open defiance of the laws banning marijuana. They also formed contingents in anti-war protests and rallies demanding freedom for imprisoned Black Panthers and other targets for repression by the government. Over 200 benefit concerts would be organized on behalf of John Sinclair, attempting to free him and to show the world what the enemy government has done to its revolutionary-minded population. John continued to inspire the White Panther Party and, and the people from his prison cell in accordance with his wife. The campaign to free him culminated with a, with a concert held on December 10, 1971, in which John Lennon and Yoko Ono performed a song called John Sinclair to a crowd of thousands of people, drawing national attention and quickly leading to the overturning of John's conviction by the Michigan Supreme Court, ruling the state's marijuana law unconstitutional. Yep. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a landmark decision which overturned a conviction based on false allegations that John and Hunt had planned a conspiracy to bomb the CIA office of the, of the University of Ann Arbor uh, campus. After the overturning of his conviction, which proved in the Supreme Court that the FBI had engaged in warrantless wiretapping of White Panther offices and clubhouses, the White Panther Party rebranded itself as the Rainbow People's Party, in part to show solidarity with the Rainbow Coalition founded by Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party, Young Lords and Young Patriots organizations in Chicago in 1969. So can I just... Um interject right here to point out that that court case is the reason that Watergate happened? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. That's how, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? All of this stuff is connected here because the, 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 the marijuana movement that we have today uh, focused around, you know, recreational, uh, legalizing recreational marijuana, yeah. uh, that is connected to the White Panther Party. The uh, the Nixon uh, uh, impeachment is connected to the White Panther Party, and COINTELPRO is connected to the White Panther Party because this is also one of the reasons why activists became conscious of COINTELPRO. So, all these different things are central to the history of the White Panther Party, um, and. It, it fucking changed U.S. history, you know? Right. So That's why John Sinclair is such a fucking legend, not just yeah. for his amazing skills at poetry. I'm from Flint, which is about an hour north of Ann Arbor, and he is a local legend because of his work right there. I've seen him speak a few times at Hash Bash in Ann Arbor, yeah. actually. Like, he's still very involved today. Well, maybe yeah. not today, but a few years ago anyway. He just had a uh, uh, like a, 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 a party uh, on Friday uh, in Detroit, commemorating 50 years of his release from prison. Yeah. So that's what's up. Yeah. So you I know, all power to him. You know. Absolutely. He has definitely earned that place as a legend. Oh yeah. His praxis is on point. So I'm going to 
just this is just the overview of the original party. I'm going to stop when we get to uh, the stuff that I already said. Okay. Uh, it says there was also an incorrect line at this time that the counterculture represented a new nation based on Adam Hoffman's analysis in, the, in his book Woodstock Nation in 1969. This reflected the trend towards cultural nationalism, infecting the movement and obscuring the class basis of the struggle. There was at the time several different predominantly white organizations allied with the Black Panther Party, from the Peace and Freedom Party to SDS, which was then split into different factions, the Young Patriots, Rising Up Angry, Youth Against War and Fascism, uh, the Revolutionary Union, and various counterculture-based groups, Yippie, the Americong, John Brown Liberation League, and the White Panther Party. He's very the Americong. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. Yeah. I actually, I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about them. Tom Watts knows more about the Americong than I do. I actually learned about that from him. Uh, and of course, this document that I'm reading is, uh, was uh, co-authored by both of us. It says, these various formations had different social community bases. Some were uh, very petty bourgeois and others more proletarian and poor lumpen. The countercultural movement included different social classes, from rich hippies to working class youth, who were the children of coal miners, auto workers, steel workers, and factory workers in general, who were destined to work in these places themselves or become lumpen proletariats and live by uh, dealing or stealing. The social base of the White Panther Party was decidedly white working class youth, white working class youth particularly from the auto industry around Detroit or Motor City and the Industrial Belt that has since become the Rust Belt. It reflected the rebellion of the youth who came of age in the 1960s, influenced by rock and roll music and alienated by racism, sexism, war, and capitalism. It was a movement inspired by the enemy. We were supposed, oh, a movement inspired by the enemy we were supposed to hate and want to kill. The Viet Cong and Red Chinese, the rebelling blacks in the ghetto, the Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and American Indians, with whom we could identify with better than with our own parents in their American dream uh, that we were supposed to die for. Dying was real, and so was the oppression of the police, and our rebellion was real too. We were taking a side against the empire and its enemies for our friends and allies. Along with the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, Young Patriots, Brown Berets, American Indian Movement, and other members of the Rainbow Coalition, the White Panther Party was a target of the FBI's COINTELPRO campaign of repression, and eventually, the original White Panther Party disbanded and John Sinclair moved to Holland, where he created Radio Free Amsterdam and continued to write uh, and perform poetry. So that's the history of the original party. Um, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, that's a lot more in-depth than uh, we actually had an episode on the White Panther Party and the MC5, but uh, what you put together there is a lot more in-depth than our piece was. Of course, we were relying heavily on, you know, Wikipedia or, uh, you know, like Ann Arbor Sun articles for mm-hmm. um, for our information, so... Yeah, there's a, there's a, a bunch of different uh, newspapers, and there's different... Um, there's different 
uh, accounts from different places all over the country. There was a chapter in Berkeley, and there was also a chapter in San Francisco uh, in the Haight-Ashbury community. Um, That's not surprising, but wow. Like, so, oh, no, no, go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say that it's encouraging that it was that widespread. Um, I mean, most of the information that we did come across made it sound like it was primarily like, you know, Detroit to Chicago. Oh, no, not at all. They, they, had a, they had a chapter in Portland. They had a chapter in Pennsylvania. There was a chapter in the UK. Actually, there were like 10 different chapters in the UK. Wow. This was actually, and there was a chapter in Germany for a little while. Ooh, nice. This became an international movement. And most of it was focused around a common love for rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. there, there's, I'm, I'm looking at my uh, research that I've got. It's very extensive. But um, they had, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They had seven different newspapers, at least as far as I can find, actively in circulation. Uh, wow. On newspapers. So there's a ton of history here. It's extremely hard to find because it's all archived in libraries and stuff like that. So, but um, yeah. I think so that's. that's really beautiful how music and poetry and politics came together to to really be, build such a beautiful movement there that's that's fucking amazing but that speaks towards that power of connection that you have when it comes to music and poetry things like that of connecting at the soul that gives you opportunity to actually talk about politics and engage with people on that level too it's also the kind of period of history that they're in too, because the music and the content of the music as a result of that. I mean, the period of history that they're in, I mean, there's this, they're at the height, one of the heights of the Cold War, you know, um, you've got the massive uh, uh, red uh, uh, pole of the world, right? You've, you've got the communist, the, in our country, the communist threat, scourge of uh, communism. And then, you know, on the other side, you get the Western power of capital. And in the middle of that, you've got rock and roll and uh, drug culture and, you know, racist repression and rebellion and everything that you can imagine happening, all, you know, interconnected in this way that gives you groups like the Black Panther Party, that gives you this psychedelic, uh, this vulgar psychedelic communist white Panther Party, you know, that in the UK is actually almost a satire. Like you look through their, their magazines and you see, you know, all these different cartoons of like, you know, a, that were written, or they were drawn by a guy who was tripping on acid in a room full of white Panthers but instead of all of these people looking like white panthers of normal people, right? They they all look like giraffes. Like this is the kind of like it's it's outrageous to some extent. And then that you have the music, right? This the lyrical content in all of these songs, you know. Uh, 
what's that song called by the Rolling Stones? Uh, uh, War is just a shot away, you know, yeah. like that lyric. There's and, and so there's just a million different different songs and different artists who come on the scene and you know, people say to this day that music just doesn't have the same political content that it used to. It doesn't have the same kind of value that it used to. And you know, you can agree with them or disagree with them in different ways, but especially I was I was gonna say I probably agree and disagree. There's still some pretty damn good underground punk. Uh, that is very anti-establishment and i mean there's some like scandinavian metal bands that are still straight up anarchists so like (laughs) i think we lack right now that doesn't make it the same is that right it's that vietnam war you know like if if there was something like that going on in the cold war i mean if there really was some kind of like serious um serious like real threat of socialism coming into existence right and there was a war about it that many sides were being taken you know that whole one side of the world was taking the side the other side was taking another side threat of you know nuclear annihilation in that way we would see some real cultural advancements we would see some serious works of art coming out we would see the same kind of wacky signs and magazines being propagated. Not on, not underground anymore, because who the, who the fuck buys a newspaper anymore? But you'd see this stuff coming out online. So, uh, so you know, just a, I guess, a full overview of that time. That's what gives you this organization. Yeah. And, and I mean, no matter what group, that you've mentioned pretty much that I've looked into, like, you know, reading their takes on society at the time, they were writing like they were on the edge of revolution. Important not to understate that they were. Like, I, I mean, globally, 1968 and 1969 was such a period of, like, revolutionary struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, from here to France to obviously fucking Vietnam. Um. I, I don't think that we've really seen a year quite like, you know, 68, 69 since then. But yeah. I think that we're on our way there. Um, right. The so conditions are perfect. One of the things that is very likely. So last year, right. That was the largest, you know, uprising in U.S. history. You know, something like 30, 40 million people were on the street. And I think as a result of that, and now I don't really have a way to prove this, but it would not surprise me. I think as a result of that, there has been some new kind of counterintelligence program. Now, the reason why I say that is because looking in on the movement and being a part of it, seeing what's going on inside of it, uh, just looking in, I could see, you know, like, for example, with Chairman Shaka and his live video, right? That uh, very obviously there's some kind of, either there was an informant when he spoke or the, the FBI was looking at some video online or, and, you know, a combination of those things. There's something that was going on around that that made, that prompted them to even, that, for them to even know about it, right? So that's an obvious thing. It's on their radar. 
right? And they are actively looking at domestic threats. But I think it's more extensive than that. It wouldn't surprise me if there were, and I won't go into the details, details but there have been infiltrations. Uh, I've heard it from people in other organizations, AIM, the Brown Berets, uh, so much the Young Lords, but, you know, uh, in the New African Black Panther Party itself. I mean, we had uh, this guy, and this is before I was chairman, uh, there was this guy last year uh, who got involved in the party. He was almost ready to become the chairman of the International Black Panther Party. This guy knew his stuff better than even some of my comrades do. And he, he had fabricated this web of lies and he had told people that you know, they need to be looking for bugs and these kinds of things. And if he would show up with a bug, like it's like serious things that make you question the people around. And right. not only that, but I personally have been followed. My comrades in the White Panther Party have been followed. New African Black Panther Party members have been followed. Misinformation has been spread about these organizations and not just about specific organizations that information has been propagated in organizations about other organizations so i see all of the makings of a new counterintelligence program one that probably never actually went away um right right so, well i mean it seems like the same kind of tactics that they were using um back in the 60s um in terms of you know like it with the with the original rainbow coalition trying to like um start shit between different organizations that were involved you know like saying that the black panthers wrote this pamphlet that they very clearly didn't yeah yeah and one of the things that this is this counterintelligence program this is going to become heightened over the next few years because the plan that the rainbow coalition has that individual organizations within the rainbow coalition have they're only set to grow. They're going to do more survival work. They're going to continue to build dual power. They're going to continue to build an alternative to uh, the capitalist society that we have. And they're also going to establish international connections. That's the goal, a united front, a worldwide united front against imperialism because of the fact that you can't have sovereign nations without uh, while empires exist, their influence is too great. The, your economic base, no matter how much you change it, will continue to be pushed in favor of those empires through sanctions, through uh, regime change, through uh, you know, culture wars, through all kinds of different things. And in the original movement in the 60s and 70s, a group of White Panthers Genie, Plamondon, and Lice and Claire. They went over to Viet, uh, North Vietnam, and that's how they found out about the Vietnam Women's Union. That's where they got the Red Star Sisters idea from. Uh, and also in the Black Panther Party, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, he had to flee the country. He went to Algeria 
And uh, not only that, but Huey Newton and several other Panthers went to uh, to see Mao in China. They never actually got to see it, but they went to China and they learned about uh, uh, Marxist-Leninism and uh, the mass line and all these different things. So when they came back and all these groups went and visited these places and you know uh, these other these countries that were not aligned economically politically with the U.S. The counterintelligence operations against those organizations were heightened severely. There, that's when you started to see mail being checked, phones being tapped, people being followed. We are going to be doing that same kind of work at some point. And so the kind of oppression that you're going to see, the kind of misinformation that the mass movement, not just us, the Pantherist people, right? But the people who are engaging in anarchist tendencies, the people who are, you know, out in the universities uh, doing kind of like feminist activism, the kind of uh, uh, anti-fascist activism, these the the mass movements, all these different groups of people, they're going to be hit with a ton of misinformation about us within the next few years, and that is really important to fight against, that you all need to know that we are comrades to you. We are actively in the works building an international proletarian revolution. We are trying to develop connections intercommunally. We are trying to develop dual power. We are not trying to occupy some campus or occupy some you know, prison or whatever and sit there and wait for the system to reform itself to get us to leave. We're actually trying to build liberated zones. If we're going to occupy something, we plan to be there indefinitely. That is now a proletarian institution. We're not trying to do some kind of reformist strategy of any kind. We are not actively trying to ally ourselves with some kind of state capitalist power. We disagree with China, disagree with Vietnam, we disagree with Cuba. In the current iteration, we disagree with them. Don't, we don't believe there's an existing socialist country in this world. Don't have the same kind of allies. But there are people across the world engaged in this kind of struggle that we believe is, you know, is correct. Is, you know, is actually going to work to build an existing socialism, take us to a communist world. We want to work with those people. And as we try to build those connections, we're going to be working with people who are directly opposed to the interests of the United States. And as a result of that, there will be people within the movements who will try to spread disinformation. You cannot fall into believing this stuff. You can't propagate it yourself. You do. You're, you're going to actively support the work of people who are trying to build that revolution. So. Right. It's important to actually look into things and verify information. Um, it's irresponsible to, to pass along information that you cannot verify. You know, that that's just hurtful. Um, that's so important because that is and has been for quite some time an active element when it comes to the way the Fed and any others who are opposed to this work try to infiltrate and tear things apart. We've seen it for decades. 
Yeah. Even going back to the pamphlets you were referring to that like the Fed was kicking out, pretending to be the Black Panthers talking shit. And I mean, it it was ridiculous even some of the stuff they were writing because it's like nobody actually fucking talks like that. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. but that's what they were trying to do is disseminate false information in order to cause division. That's the shit we're up against. And they pioneered a new set of tactics. I can list to you four different movements within the last few years who started off at the base level with the masses and then gradually ballooned into a nonprofit system. Yeah. That nonprofit system was controlled opposition, was directly helping the Democratic Party get votes. There is a tendency uh, by this empire to take control over movements that had well intentions, that were revolutionary to the core, founded by people who were dyed in the wool Marxists and, you know, Leninists and all these different things. The empire will take control of that momentum and then create a 501c to to steer the momentum in the direction of reformism and then when they actually get to the point where a reform is on the table which it usually doesn't get that far nothing ever gets changed they don't actually adopt the reform so and they, just it also garner votes. What's that? they just use it to garner votes i mean that's precisely what happened with aoc of basically co-opting so many actual leftist movements just to garner votes and now that she's in there what what is she actually doing with that position you know it's um, absolutely controlled opposition yeah, yeah. Yep. so the take is and the thing is is they do the, the way they are allowed to do this is because of the tax laws right like if you're an organization and you're not a 501c they can come after you through your finances, right? If you're, you don't pay taxes on food and shit like that, they, maybe you're running some kind of a survival program. And then, you know, you're distributing food or you're trying to offer, you know, medical services or education or any of these things. And you don't have a certificate or you don't have, you know, you're not, they're not getting taxes from you or you're not a nonprofit. They can come after you and they do. And so they're going to steer the movement in that direction. They're going to try to say, okay, these people are building dual power, right? They want, for example, they see that food insecurity in this particular city is a huge problem, right? More, more of a problem than people not having houses. And so we go out and we do our food distribution and we set up an independent chain where we have a farm somewhere and a ranch and we're literally producing the food, putting it into cans and boxes and shit, have our own distribution chain, have our own, you know, or our own logistics, have our own distribution chain, and it's all free, and nobody's making a profit on any of this, right? They're going to see that, and they're going to say, okay, well, we're we're not able to take taxes from this. This is a problem, and people are becoming not uh, no longer dependent on the supermarket. They're not dependent on spending money. Well, also, they're trying to do this with housing, and then now they're trying to do it with education. They're trying to build an alternative system. Look at this, right? What they're going to do is try to take control over that movement before it gets to that point through 
nonprofit status through agitation and infiltration, through misinformation campaigns, through a whole bunch of different means. They're going to try to take control over it, turn it into a reformist strategy, something that's pro capitalist, right? Somebody's going to make some money off of this. Your supermarkets, the big ones like Walmart and Meyer and all these different people, they're going to actively make it a charity where, you know, now these people can get their, their taxes deducted through donations. And so now it's a part of the capitalist system, right? Now some money can be generated from it because that's what capitalism does. It pushes everything into a, a you know, a for-profit position, right? Well, your entire body is a, a commodity, right? right? Well, they're going to, they're going to try to do that with movements. They already do. And so we will see that happen too on our end to fight against things like that. What do you suggest as a solution there? Because that's actually something we've been discussing a lot lately, because those are precisely the type of things that we would like to get set up and, you know, funded with mutual aid. Um, but we've been discussing that too, of like, do we have to do a 501c3 to do this? You know, what the fuck do we do here? Well, absolutely not. I mean, I've been an anarchist before. Even when I was an anarchist, I was completely opposed to the idea. I also don't believe that most of the things that, sorry, most of the programs that anarchists in this country are offering are mutual aid because they're not. They're charity. It's not mutual aid. These people are getting food. They're, they're all going to get into an organization, pool some funds that they've made off of a capitalist system, go to a supermarket or a dumpster or wherever, they're going to source this from a capitalist system, especially if the people who are especially doing this through dollars or sourcing the funds through a community, like a whole neighborhood, mm-hmm. that's especially not mutual aid. They're, they're going to get all this, all this money or they're going to source this food somewhere. And then they're going to go into the community. They're going to set up a table. They're going to give people food, right? Which in itself actually solves the problem immediately, right? So it's not all bad. But there's no two way it's not mutual it's top down it's one way it's not mutual aid you see what i'm saying okay the mutual aid system is when i say okay you you're a farmer i'm a roofer right so you need a roof and i need food so now we exchange that's mutual aid that's the difference between mutual aid and a charitable program you know and so in the end the thing is is when you exchange things like services that's not really something that a government can like get on your back about, right? Like, okay, maybe you don't have the uh, like the, the approval of a local government, right? Like, you know, you can go to city hall and ask them for uh, a permit to get a new roof, right? And maybe I didn't follow the proper zoning protocol when it came to farmland, right? So they can get on your back that way, but they can't tell you that if you have the proper zoning permit and I have the the, the proper uh, construction licensing that i can't give my service to you for free they can't do that i can absolutely do that that's not illegal right you know so my thing is is if you want to do something like mutual aid do it do mutual aid they can't stop you you know what i mean but well it can stop you but it's more overt that way and then height it makes it's interesting because it heightens it's an antagonism (coughs) height Right, because if you are actually solving a food insecurity problem in your community through actual mutual aid, that means that people in that community have 
more of a connection to your organization than they would if that program didn't exist, right? So they'll actively see the repression of your organization. They'll actually see, they'll actually see less food on their table as a result of that. And they'll actually bother them, you know? So there's a kind of level of agitation that the government like shoots itself in the foot over. Like it heightens the, the, the it heightens the repression and they shoot themselves in the foot. People get angry at them. I mean, if you're gonna do mutual aid, just do it the right way. You go out there and set up a table. It matters how you source that food. It matters what the people you're giving that food to are gonna do for you. Ideally, you want the community giving food to other community members in exchange. You don't want your organization giving food to people in the community and then asking them for something. That makes you look bad. You see what I'm saying? So you, right. it's the, the way the praxis works. Most of the anarchists in this country are doing it wrong. But I'm not an anarchist. But mutual aid isn't the proper strategy right now. That comes much later. Survival programs are where it's at. I mean, I've kind of incorrectly used uh, the terms pretty much interchangeably, but um, thank you for that context on that. See, the mutual aid is what comes after. Now, I, I'm, anarchists are going to be absolutely enough dogs with me about this, but I believe personally that the mutual aid strategy, that thing, that comes in much later. That's after we've gotten rid of markets, right? Because now I can, I can, you know, what other way am I going to be able to get food? What other, what other way is anybody going to be able to get food if there's nobody producing food, right? I have an obligation to society to do that, right? And if I need a service, right, for example, a roof, I should be able to go contact the roofer and he should do that for me. I don't necessarily need to give him food because we could have common places for it, like a supply depot. But all the farmers put it there. You see what I'm saying? So mutual aid becomes kind of... Uh, it's well, not a, access for things. Yeah, I mean, it becomes... I don't know how to really... It's as if we've turned Walmart into a communist supply depot, right? Anybody goes in there, takes what they need and leaves. And they mark everything that the building and have the production chain account for it and bring more in the next day, right? So there's whenever there's a supply shortage, it's it's quelled through the production of society because it's trapped, right? I don't need to go to the farmer to get food. I can go to a common place for it, right? It's like you can go for a common place to get somebody to build you a roof or something like that. The point is, is that we're exchanging these things for free for the benefit of society. We don't, we're not able to do that while a market exists. A market is what is going to hinder us from exchanging those services freely. You'd be hard pressed to find a roofer in this country who will do that job for free, right? Because the market exists. They have a food that in order for them to get food, they have to exchange their labor for money. You see what I'm saying? Right. That's the only way for them to access the food on their table and the roof over their head. Exactly. Whereas if those were things already just being communal resources, that wouldn't be a contingency on it. Yeah. And to get, now we have to get to the point where all that stuff is a resource that anybody can access freely before we start doing that. We can't do that until it's at that point because then something's tied to the market. And right. if something's tied to the market in that system, 
everything will become tied to the market because that's what that's what a market does. It makes everything become for profit. Becomes co-opted by capitalism. So no, we don't subscribe to this concept of you know doing mutual aid right now. We see building the point where we can do mutual aid, right? So it's like we want to build an alternative system. So we want to try to create something that's detached from capitalism, like I'd say a production chain or a service, right? So if it's education, we'll run a service out of pocket or through the community. We'll just provide that, right? It's almost like charity, right? The hopes is, is that now that we have this school that exists and it's free for the community, they don't have to go and pay for like textbooks now or any number of, or if it's a private school, they have to pay tuition fees or anything like that. They could just access it, right? And you try to create as many of these things as you can. And then you create people, uh, organizations of people to defend them. That's the most important thing and a way to govern it. It's to create an alternative system within the society we exist in. You want to create a liberated zone, not an occupied zone. So that's basically the difference between like actual mutual aid and what we're trying to do. The survival programs are to get us through to the revolution, right? Yeah. We get the masses on our side through providing services like that. And it's the masses that will ultimately uh, fight and do all that, all that's necessary for a revolution to succeed. Um, but in order to get there, you have to, you have to develop higher and higher stages of the class struggle. Um, and so to get them to have a, have a class consciousness uh, around, around these, this, uh, their, their, their lives are going to become increasingly detached from capitalism, right? And so that's the goal. Right. It's one of those things that takes my memory back to um, ethics and logic courses in university. Um, because when it comes to ethics, if something is a necessity for life, then it is a right. And that includes housing, food, education. It's necessary for survival. Yeah. Um, also, so, okay, okay, to like circle back, um, I, I would assume that these types of, uh, this type of organizing strategy, where am I going with this? Take two. We don't know. <laughs> no, so, um, wow, I just totally had a brain fart. I'm so sorry. Um, so how do people start building these types of organizations in their communities? That's what I was trying to ask. <laughs> well, the easiest way, and this is something that we engage in out here in the Midwest, you try to find something called a forum. Now, a forum can be anything from a newspaper to the website to say, a podcast like this one to, uh, I don't know, and it, it, so it's basically some kind of a, a, a vehicle around an issue. So like if it's, if it's a, and it's tailored to a community, 
That's another thing that is really important here. We have to scientifically analyze the material conditions of our communities, right? Yep. So if I live in a community where a third of the infrastructure is abandoned or unoccupied, one of the highest problems, right, one of the biggest contradictions is homeownership. Who can own a home? Well, there's not enough homes for everybody. There's, you know, most of the homes are falling into disrepair. Maybe I should engage in, you know, take housing takeovers or, you know, uh, 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 like re, re, uh, housing rehabs or something like that, right? And it's the, now that could be a form, right? Or you can, you, like I said, you can do it through media or you know, any, any number of different problems. So any, any issue you see in your community, you can organize that. And you want to start with, you know, a, a small group of people. You don't need a large group. If you can have a large group, that's ideal. But and then you want them to be people who are from that community, ideally. Um, and the more you solve the problems of people in that community and ask them to engage in those problems while also teaching them about the problem and also teaching them how you learned about it and you know these kinds of things, people will begin to observe what you're doing, right? They'll see, okay, there's a group of, you know, people out on the street corner and every, every couple months, somebody gets hit by a car on this corner because there's no stop sign, right? Well, now there's people out there who are holding a stop sign and they're stopping vehicles. They're saying, Hey, there's children over here. You shouldn't hit them. You shouldn't hit them. You shouldn't drive, shoot speed through here, right? You're going to solve that problem, right? And the people who all live in that neighborhood are going to see that you're solving that problem, right? Yeah. And then, you know, those people are going to talk about it and the neighborhood over is also going to hear about that and maybe they have the same problem. And so maybe they'll go out and do that when they see you send another person to go solve that problem over there, right? Maybe they'll engage in that. So the idea is that people will learn through your ability to uh, kind of propagandize, kind of educate them, then they'll see you putting that into practice through observation, and then they'll begin to practice it themselves. That was the one of the methods for organizing people that the original Black Panther Party had. And that's one that, that we put into practice too. Um, so your ability to get that information out there is really important. And it is uh, a great way to, to do that. Um, but also getting to know people in your community too, right? Because if I have a vehicle organized around, let's say food insecurity, I need to know who, I need to know where in my community to, to, to give that food to. I need to know where to set my table up, right? I don't want to go on the rich side of town and put it up because nobody's going to need it, right? They might take it, but they're, they don't need it in the same way that like the part of town with a third of the housing in disrepair needs it, you know? So, and then once you get your program set up and you get your handful of people who run it, you do it consistently. So you have to set that table up once a week or once every few days. And you have to get to know everybody who comes to that table. You need to be on a first name basis with them. You know, you have to have the conversations about what their life is like. 
so that right. you can learn about more of the problems that they have, right? And then you can say, hey, you have that same problem with half the people on this street, right? Or you have, you, you might not see this other problem, but you know, two thirds of the people on the street have this problem. Do you have this problem too? And they begin to become conscious of the issues in, in their community. And from there, you can ask them to participate in what you're doing, right? They're observing you. You've educated them about the issues, right? All that's left is for them to participate. So the goal is to get them to do it themselves. They'll help staff your, your table, right? And then you have more labor left over for solving the other problems that you had learned about. And you set up more programs and it just kind of grows from there. Now, <clears throat> there's other things too that, he, that the original party did. It's changed a little bit now because they have instant messaging. Things like phone trees, right? They used to be a huge thing before cell phone uh, existed uh, or text and the internet existed. Uh, calling people, you know, I have three people that I call, each person has three people they call, and it just cascades until the entire community is aware of something, right? And that's something that existed as a common tactic for a long time. Uh, what else is there? Uh, flyering. Flyering is huge. Putting things up on telephone poles. Hey, there on, you know, Fifth Avenue, there's a, there's a clothing uh, distribution on Sunday. You know, put it up in a couple neighborhoods, you know, uh, make they, people will come and help see that you're doing that consistently, come and help and learn about the issue, learn about the issues of other communities. I could go on and on. There's a, there's a ton of ways to, to, to get people aware of what it is. The problem is that since we live in a society where you have to sell your body for money and increasingly so every year people usually don't have the time so having people who who do have at least a little bit of time who will dedicate all of their time outside of work selling their body as a professional you know uh that is really important is finding those people is a difficult thing The more of these problems that you solve, the more programs you offer, the more time those people will have. So, right. you know, it, it kind of solves itself after a certain amount of time. Right. <clears throat> so I guess like back onto the topic of the Rainbow Coalition and the United Panther Movement, um, how did the community center in Newark uh, come about? And... Um, how do people get involved with the United Panther movement, I guess would be the other question. And I have a question to add to it too, of what all are you guys doing at the center? Right. So I'm not, I'm not out of Newark, right? So I don't, I don't know what all the plans are per se. I'm not sure if it's really even anything's really planned out in the long run yet. I'll tell you how we'll, I'll answer those questions. Uh, historically, I guess, right, from, uh, through a timeline, uh, that the community center was uh, a dilapidated building. It, I think it was dilapidated for, I don't know, like 16 years, something like that. Uh, 
in uh, Newark, New Jersey, on Orange, Orange Avenue, something like that. Um, and Chairman Shaka, when he got out of prison, one of the first things that he was going to set himself to through party work was getting a building that they could call uh, a pamper office. And so he, you know, searched around for a long time. I believe he was working with Green Party uh, people trying to find a, the right building. Uh, and then they came across this, you know, this building in, on that, uh, that street and it had been dilapidated. So what they did was they just went in there and they started fixing it. And then when the city came to fight them, they didn't leave. And then the city caved and gave them a permit and now they own the building so the thing is, is i assume they have to pay some kind of property taxes so assuming they're paying some kind of property tax they can't really stop them right and the person who previously owned the building probably had some back taxes or realized that you know the amount of money it would take to fix this building wouldn't be worth the cost right so in us you know as professional revolutionaries, we don't really care about cost. We'll find ways to source everything we need outside of money. So right. for us, it costs nothing except for the taxes, you know, and maybe, maybe and the labor to do the work. No, you don't even, they have to pay. They don't need to. People are in the community, walk past that building, see that it is in disrepair and that this, these Panthers are turning it into a Panther office and they volunteer to help. Like I've been there, I've seen this happen. Like there's that's awesome for money. That's what I meant of like not not giving them money for it, but that that personal cost to each person volunteering their labor there. That's beautiful. That they're like, yeah. you know what? I care about this. I want to throw down and invest of my skills, my talents, and my labor to make this happen. That's the beautiful. Thing is, the the Panthers down in Newark, they they didn't just go into a neighborhood that you know they had no connection to like they actually built up a connection with that neighborhood over like months like so they know everybody who lives on that street and you know if you ever go there you know the chairman he just walks down the street and he's saying hi to everybody everybody wants to know what's what he's doing what's the plan what's going on you know and it's everybody from like you know somebody who's you know selling some drugs to you know swing on their way you know they're all they're all all in they recognize what's going to happen when that building is finished you know they know that this is a service that they're not going to be able to turn down that they you know it's going to be a value to them so they freely offer offer you know their their labor um all kinds of different things so right so it's one thing especially you know for the people living in the neighborhood um you know, when you're living in an area, and this is coming from personal perspective of having lived on the east side of Flint. When you're living in an area where you're seeing buildings around you go into blight because they've been neglected for so long. Or down, if we're talking about out, the east side. Yeah. Um, it, it's really something that punches you in the fucking soul of like, okay, this this is my neighborhood. I want to see this lifted up. You know, and when you're in that position, you got two choices to either completely demo it and at least use the land as green space, gardening, farming, etc., or to rebuild what's there. 
and stuff like that is uplifting to a neighborhood when they're when you're used to just seeing everything around you dilapidated and you see folks coming out and trying to improve those things that's uplifting so Rod, you had a question about it's that. actually a sister city with flint they work really? we have in newark yeah newark has four times the lead levels on the black oh, segregated non-gentrified side of flint so newark and flint have been sister cities in that battle for a long time one of the things when sulu first got out of prison and got back on the streets i mean even just having mutual aid for water supply in the city on his side so was a big deal yeah they share that with flint um a lot I think of us only extremely gentrified city though at this point it was always a highly urban working class city part of the riots in the 60s but it's got one side of the city now is so gentrified as a city you saw it jake you go from one end to the other it's like an entirely different city so they should leave him alone on there because they're they're not paying attention to that side of the city anyway yeah. right right what were you gonna ask there jake Oh, you. Uh, Where yeah. should I call you, Chairman? It's it's up to you. I, it doesn't bother me either way. Um, oh yeah. So you asked me a question about the Rainbow Coalition. I forgot what that was. I, I guess like well, obviously the inspiration for the second Rainbow Coalition came from the original Rainbow Coalition, but like, how did that kind of coalesce? Well. Um, out of necessity, um, because, you know, any Panther organization in a vacuum, well, not even really so much in a vacuum, just on their own, they're not going to, if you're going to call yourself a revolutionary, you have to build coalitions. It, it's, it's meaningless to say that you're, you know, a Panther and you're not going to be in ideological or even programmatic community with the other Panther organizations, right? So, and not even Panther organizations, any uh, community organization that's revolutionary. We can't do this work alone. So it comes out of necessity. Uh, and also it's the, it's a, the next, is it whoever's gonna call it might be me. Yeah, it is me. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, Okay. So yeah, um, it's it's also the the next it's a, it's a higher development of revolutionary communalism. So um, putting so the idea is that you have to have uh, an organi organization that fights for the sovereignty of your community, right? In and fights against the empire, which tries to put down national sovereignty. And national identity, uh, recognition by other nations, things like that, actively fights against your community forming a national identity, forming nationhood, you know, forming the institutions needed for a, a nation to exist. So <clears throat> if you want, if, if you want your, your, uh, your national sovereignty, your nationhood, those things, um, you have to form, you know, an organization that fights for the supremacy of that community. 
And there's a higher stage to this, though, is that it's, it's the cross-community connection, right? So there's other groups that are also recognizing that. They're going to recognize your serenity. You're going to recognize their serenity, right? You're going to fight for that issue collectively. That's what a rainbow coalition is, right? Now, there are higher stages to this that haven't been recognized yet, that haven't been developed, right? But you can't get there unless you have that coalition. So all of us collectively fight against imperialism, you know, in one place together. And without that uh, collective strength, uh, we would never be able to, we would never be able to achieve the goals that we have put in front of us. We wouldn't be able to call ourselves revolutionaries. Um, so that, that's why it's out of necessity. Oh, I, oh, I was muted. My bad. <laughs> um, Caitlin said, I love all the intercommunal, intercity, interstate connections so much. And like you were just saying, it's it's out of necessity. Um, strength and unity. Power to the people. Yeah. Um, so I guess that brings me to the last question that I have, which is, you know, how do people get involved with the uh, United Panther movement? So... Uh... If they want to get involved with the United Panther movement, they can contact uh, one of the ministers or chairman. Um, so if you want to contact me, the easiest way to get into contact is on Facebook. Send me a friend request. You can message me. Uh, my Facebook name is Jake Hansbury. I can give you guys the link if you want. Uh, that help. Um, but it's the same as the lettering below my video. You think somebody my age would be more tech savvy than I am? Shit happens. Oh man, you, you to, should. To your page, your page, Kwame and Chairman Zulu. Yeah, yeah. If you could do that, that would okay. be excellent. This is yep. gonna take me a minute. Yep, I'll do that. Thank well, you. I mean, uh, all those links will be in the video description because, I mean, if, if we were live, I would just drop them in the comments. But Right, right. Yeah. Um, anyway, that, that's how. You can also email me, too. Um, I'll drop my email here. Somebody can. One of you guys can copy and paste it. Okay. And then display that. And then uh, I, I assume that the um, education course is a requirement to yes. uh, getting involved. Yes. Um, so if you want to join the UPM, you have to take an eight-week course. Uh, either I will provide it to you through video or um, Chairman Shaka will provide it to you. Uh, or Kwame, Minister of Culture. Awesome. Now, is there, uh... there, there is a difference. I just want to make this clear. There is a difference between the UPM, as I was saying earlier. That's a mass-based organization and the White Panther Party. 
to join the White Panther Party, you have to work within the UPN. There is also a course that you have to take to become a member. This is different than what the original Panther Party did. The original Panther Party had open recruitment. You could come, you just had to do their course, and now you're a party member. We don't do that because of infiltration. So you have to work within the UPM for a while. And then you can take an advanced course, which is pretty extensive, not going to lie. Um, it's essentially a formal education in revolutionary politics. So, um, Understandable. Right. I mean, there's a lot to it. Anyway, uh, that's. I think that might be all I have for you. Uh, if you have any other questions, you can ask me. Uh, I don't think I really do have any other questions. You were quite thorough. Right, extremely thorough. Thank you for that. The only other thing I can think of is what we were discussing before we hopped into a recording um, about indigenous rule of where you stand on that. Um, I believe in... Uh, stages to revolution uh now the indigenous peoples uh across the world for you know say a little less than ten thousand years ago uh all of all of the world was under the economic system political or i'm sorry a primitive communism now history advances in epochs so you had primitive communism you had slave-based feudal society and then you had uh, a capitalist society and then after that you will have a socialist society and after that you have a communist society so to get to uh communism to get sorry sorry to get to to get to communism you have to have uh, a revolution against capitalism and to have a revolution against capitalism in this country especially this country, when it has been so thoroughly colonized, you need to unite across communities, right? There are nations within this country, and I'm not talking about like, in the same sense that you could be a black nationalist and not be a separatist, right? There are communities in this country of white people who don't identify with the U.S., who want the ability to federate an intercommunal republic, right? So indigenous people, you know, uh, black people, white people, Asian people, all these different kinds of people, so that we can have equal representation. It's, it's, what, it's what should have been created when this country broke off from England, but that's not what was created, right? We had slavery, deep repression against black people. We had an ongoing and it's still ongoing genocide against uh, uh, indigenous people. So to get to the point where we can have communism, you're going to need to develop socialism first. And the only way to do that is to have a revolution against capitalist empire that is a, a basically a white supremacist state. Uh, and to do that, you're going to need to cross all of, of the you're going to need to organize all of the different revolutionary organizations in this country into a coalition. And they need to have equal representation. We can't say that we care about democracy 
and not afford equal representation on part of everybody. That's that is an incredible concept. Yeah, that's the problem with the system that we have right now. It is all controlled and steered by aging white men. There is very little representation from anybody else, if any. And when there is representation, it's mostly symbolic. Now, there right. is, you know, different communities experience different forms of, of, you know, repression and things like that, right? Now, the white community doesn't experience any degree to, to the level of uh, to, to the level of repression that the black community or the indigenous community, for that matter. Um, right. uh, but there is repression in all communities, and they're all there's a so there's a few different kinds. But the main one, the biggest form of repression, is based on private property. So the fact that the economic base of this country is private property means that in all of the different communities whether it's indigenous black white asian there is a difference between members of those community communities who own things and who don't right now in the white community that difference is a little bit less because white people predominantly own all of the land and buildings all the machines and things like that right mm -hmm. but there is a, uh, a majority of the white community, just like in every community, that don't own anything. Right. That have to work to survive. And that is a common form of repression that all of us identify with. All of us agree with that. Yep. Right? Exactly. And me recognizing that is taking place in the black community, it's taking place in the indigenous community, that is a point of programmatic unity. Right? Yeah. So if there are indigenous people who believe that any revolutionary movement should be led by uh, indigenous people. Uh, if we if we both disagree on that, we will agree on ninety percent of everything else. If that is the basis, or more, honestly, a division, we will never have a revolution. It won't happen, right? So, and if it does happen, one of the two political lines are going to win out. They're in dialectical relationship with each other. They're in opposition to each other. It makes it more difficult, puts more obstacles in the way. So if we care about democracy, if we care about being able to get to a point where we, we don't put the, the fate of the environment in the hands of 10% of the world, right. or less than 10% of the world, if we want to get to that point, we want to get to a point where we can have a, a modern communism that doesn't destroy the planet, right? Right. Agreed. So. And yeah, uh, well, well said on all of that, honestly. Right. And to be fair, while while most of our viewership will probably understand that fully in case there is anybody who's listening who doesn't um, have the the theoretical background there when it comes to the difference between personal and private property because what you're referring to there is not people's homes etc you're referring to land owned for the means of production 
whereas personal property is your home. So that's a point of contention that a lot of people don't understand because they are like, oh, commies want to take your home. And it's like, (laughs) I'm absolutely speaking in opposite. Like, for example, it would be wrong for somebody to claim that like, so like, say I own my home, right? But I also yeah. own the neighbor's home and the other person's home and the other person's home. It would be wrong for me to say that those homes are my personal property. That's absolutely private property. It's absolutely the use of land for profit, the use of buildings for profit. Yes. That's what In we the situations of rentals. Yes. yes. Right. I absolutely. That is. Yeah. Agreed. And thank you for the clarification there because, yeah, therein also lies the difference between whether you actually own your home or are renting it from a capitalist. Yes. And they are steering this shit in the direction where most people are stuck in rentals, whether it be because their credit score score is holding them back um, or, you know, any other factor of not having the capital to put down on buying a house, things like that, that are, are impediments to that. We've got corporations of investors going and buying up everything they can find for sale just to turn it into rental properties and causing shortages for people who actually can buy. Um, All of these things are being done for a reason, and that is to turn what would be your personal property into a private property for them to profiteer off of. Right. And absolutely all of this is theft, right? Nobody, these people are not granted permission to do any of this by the people. Right. This is a fundamentally anti-democratic uh, thing that's going on in this country. Capitalism has always been that way. The capitalism once was a revolutionary system. Right. When we had feudalism, right, the domination of kings, you and I were tied necessarily to the land that we lived on. Right. You right. came with that when an aristocrat was given a fee. Right. You were owned by that aristocrat indirectly through you being tied to the land that you were that you were living on right yep. but when when the bourgeois in the borough seized control of political power from the kings and aristocrats and abolished that system they further made the ownership over human beings indirect some of some of it was still direct because it was slavery that existed but it's a vestige of you know the feudalism yeah it became a work-based relationship, right? Where they don't own you, and they don't own you because of the tie to the land. They own you because of the tie to the workplace, because of the, you know. So they've granted you some freedom, but in exchange, give uh, taken the freedom of the individual to uh, recognize the right of ownership of land, or the right to own a building, or the right to you know own your own body. It's ridiculous. Right. So it's fundamentally anti-democratic. Uh, it absolutely creates a surplus at the theft of everything else, of everyone else. So, yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. And just to, that's what you were highlighting with that. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, this has been an awesome conversation, honestly. Um, Hell yeah. I don't well, really have anything else. <laughs> Kayla, do you have anything? What's that? I was asking if Kayla had uh, No, just wanted to thank you and wanted to thank you for the education and for the course. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm going to repeat it um, just to really digest it. And Of course, next time around, it will be 
done in a much higher quality. I got to get a new webcam. This one's terrible. I got to get a microphone. So it'll be done in a uh, a better better quality. But uh, yeah, you're a really good teacher. I mean, just like this podcast is showing, you're a wealth of knowledge. I'm, um, you know, an investigative journalist. I couldn't find hardly anything on the White Panthers. You just gave me more education in those 10 minutes than I've been able to find for months. So. Yeah, um, I can I can send you the research notes that I have if you want to look in a little bit more in depth. There's there's actually a ton of information. You just got to look really hard. Yeah. Well, um, and thanks to for we are men. What's up? <laughs> oh, thank you, Robin, for the platform. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. We appreciate what you're doing. I know I'm not officially enrolled in the course, but I have been following the videos you've been kicking out for it and watching those when I've had the chance. And I love what you're doing. Thank you for the education. Yeah. And I mean, pretty much the next time around, I'm going to take the course so I can actually like take good notes because I don't know. I, I took some notes the the first class that I attended. And then, like, reading them back, I was like, yeah, this is shit. <laughs> you know, this is the thing. A lot of people don't realize about uh, uh, any collectivist philosophy, right? The education about that is also collectivist, right? So, right. Right. So, you know, if, if you want to learn about what communism is, right, you, you should learn about that in a group setting yeah. because it's even the education is uh, a practical implementation of that theory that you're learning and so if you take a, a class on communism you know through just you you know wa watching something pre-recorded or you know just reading a textbook or something like that by yourself the quality of your notes will not be of the same quality as if you did that in a collective of people you know with other people right in that material so anyway um all power to the people. Absolutely. Fuck yes. All right. Well, I guess I'll um, put up this screen. Um, <laughs> of course, the, this uh, this episode will be available um, Monday at 8 on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. Um, and it will also be on our website for wearemany.org uh, and we will have all of the links to um, the White Panther pages in the uh, video description. Uh, once again, thank you for your time and um, you're welcome back whenever you would like to come back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thank you for joining us today, Jake. Very welcome. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Just worry about it. Learn how to use my...